I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Welcome, everybody, to IntroVets Podcast. Hey. The Thanksgiving episode. It's a new one. The first one ever. Yes, it's shiny. Today, we have a case for you. We sure do. As always, when we review cases on the podcast, they are presented anonymously. That means that the identity of the patient, the veterinarian treating the patient, are kept anonymous for the protection of everyone involved, and certain aspects of the case may have been changed, things that don't affect the outcome but that could potentially help identify the patient. Those have been changed just so that we can make sure everything stays nice and in disguise. It's not your business. That's right. <laughs> okay, JJ. Mm-hmm. Hit us with the case. Today we have Zeke. Zeke is a seven-year-old male castrated Yorkie poo. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> not going to go down that road. Who has been presented for vomiting and diarrhea? Um, owners noticed blood in the stool today for the first time. Um, he's vomited more than 10 times total in the last time he vomited was about an hour ago and the vomiting initially began yesterday the day before yesterday he didn't have a great appetite the diarrhea began earlier today and zeke has a previous diagnosis of diabetes mellitus Mm. that has been well controlled with mph insulin twice daily which is not gonna help matters here yeah there's it's always a higher level of concern i think when we have a diabetic present with any kind of sickness Mm Okay. The owners tried to give us Serenia tablet at home, but of course he yacked it up. Oh boy. Okay. Well, that is kind of concerning. Uh, what was noted on physical exam? Uh, mucous membranes were pink but tacky. I had some abdominal pain in the cranial abdomen, and a pet smelled like puke. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's the smell. They always get it like in their beard and stuff. Uh, Oh, don't I know it? You can walk into the exam room and have that sour smell and be Mm -hmm. like, yeah, your dog is definitely exactly, Yeah. Yeah. Fizz gig vomits. If I don't wash that beard, he curdles. He smells like rotten milk. I can't stand it. There's also some evidence of diarrhea on the fur under the tail. Okay. That's probably not contributing uh, to the good smell the pet may have. (laughs) He's not as active as normal, but he is wagging his tail. He doesn't seem quite as excited to see the vet who he normally loves. Okay. Well, uh, let's talk about some differentials. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you got the the GI signs in the diabetic patient. Um, he seems kind of acutely sick, relatively, um, and he seems a little dumpy and maybe a little dehydrated on mm-hmm. physical exam. Okay. Uh, so he's got the blood in the stool. I'm going to say... Uh, HGE, or hemorrhagic gastroenteritis, is a potential differential. Mm-hmm. Pancreatitis. Pancreatitis. Love it. Okay. Of course, you could have eaten a foreign body. Mm-hmm. Could be trying to make our day difficult. Might be having a touch of the DKA. Yeah. So diabetic ketoacidosis. He is a diabetic dog. What if his blood sugar is not really well controlled? What if he's metabolizing that fat for energy? And now he's become acidotic. Mm-hmm. Uh, these symptoms would fit, potentially. So, okay. Uh, we'll just throw out uh, intestinal parasites. Always yep. in the southeast, United States, you got to worry about that. Yep. No matter the time of year, even on Thanksgiving. Rule that shit out. That's right. 
And then I will just say other bullshit, okay? Other crap happening in the dog, okay? Mm. What if he's severely azotemic from some other problem that we don't know about yet or something like that, okay? Mm. So we'll just say miscellaneous BS. (laughs) I think that's a pretty good differential list. Mm -hmm. Okay, so with our differential list, what we're going to use that to do is generate kind of a wish list of tests that we want to run so that we can understand more about what's going on. So, JJ, what is going to be on your wish list test-wise? Uh, first thing, uh, minimum database mm-hmm. at minimum. Yep. And that minimum database, you know, is a complete blood count, chemistry profile, and a urinalysis. Mm-hmm. Okay. A radiograph of the abdomen or mm-hmm. abdominal imaging. That's going to help us look and see, you know, did the patient maybe eat something that they haven't told us about that's stuck somewhere? And with that, we might also think about using the ultrasound to just do a focused assessment of the abdomen. We can take a look at the pancreas really well. We can make sure there's no free fluid in the abdomen. We can make sure we don't see an evidence of dilated bowel loops that would make us think of an obstruction. Mm-hmm. Okay. And sprinkle a little CPL test in there and stir the pot. I think you got a good list. Yeah, I would also do a CPL test on this dog. <laughs> <laughs> it seems suspicious. Mm-hmm. So I think those would be like the first things that I would go to. If I could pick anything for my first level of testing, that'd be a pretty comprehensive list. And, you know, of course, if the owners were like, oh, let's start slower than that, you know, then we could kind of decide based on how the pet was doing sort of what to pick and choose from from there. But if we can, I'd really like all those things. Mm-hmm. So, JJ, mm-hmm. what sorts of tests were approved in this case and what were the results? Um, we were able to do some lab work. Okay. And I'll go through those results real quick. CBC results showed mild leukocytosis without a left shift. Um, red blood cell numbers and parameters were normal. Okay. Platelets were normal. Okay. We had a slightly elevated BUN at 40 milligrams per deciliter. Creatinine is 1.8 milligrams per deciliter. Lipase and amylase are elevated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cholesterol is also mildly elevated. Okay. Uh, sodium and chloride are mildly decreased. Potassium is low normal at 3.6 millimoles per liter. Uh, CPL is abnormal. Mm-hmm. Okay. Starting to see some. Red flags. Yeah, you know, it seems suspicious. Mm-hmm. All right. And we were able to do radiographs and um, of the abdomen. Showed adequate serosal detail generally, but there is decreased serosal detail in the cranial abdomen. Hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, fast ultrasound shows hyperechoic pancreas with no free fluid noted. Okay. All right. So, you know, um, these results are sort of <laughs> suspicious mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, for pancreatitis. Yeah. Um, so uh, white blood cell count's a little bit high. We've got a little mild azotemia going on. That creatinine at 1.8, that's usually not outside the reference interval. You would definitely want to look at the urine concentration, you know, to determine like the appropriateness of that. But 1.8 is just a smidge higher than like what we'd love to see. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, BUN is at 40. Of course, we have the elevated CPL and the lipase and amylase being elevated plus the cholesterol all highly suspicious. The sodium and chloride are going to be low because he's been vomiting. Mm -hmm. Okay. The potassium is low normal, so it's not low yet, but we need to kind of keep an eye on that sucker uh, because once we start rehydrating him, that's going to dip low potentially. Uh, And then um, 
radiographs of the abdomen, maybe uh, serosal detail is decreased in the cranial abdomen. So doesn't say anything about a mass effect, but that's kind of what I associate that with. Like maybe there's a little mass effect in the cranial abdomen. And then on ultrasound, we have that bright pancreas with no free fluid. I bet that pancreas is also kind of plump and that's what is causing that appearance on x-rays. So working diagnosis for me would be pancreatitis. Yeah, show would. Oh, Lord. So tell us about pancreatitis, G. Well, pancreatitis is inflammation of the pancreas, and the severity varies a lot. It can be mild, severe, or anywhere in between. And it can also be acute or chronic. In acute pancreatitis, which means like all of a sudden these symptoms are there, there's infiltration of the pancreas by neutrophils, moderate to severe pancreatic necrosis. Sounds terrible. Edema or swelling, okay, and then hemorrhage potentially. And in pancreatitis that's acute, the acinar tissue and the ducts are preserved. They remain intact, okay? They're not destroyed. Now, that's a little different than in chronic pancreatitis, where there's long-term inflammation in the pancreas. And this is associated with mild mononuclear inflammation and fibrosis, so basically like scar tissue. And in this situation, you can actually have damage to the actual structure of the pancreas to the extent that it inhibits the pancreas's ability to do its job. Sometimes chronic pancreatitis can occur after repetitive insults to the pancreas, like if you had multiple acute pancreatitis bouts before. If your patient doesn't already have diabetes like ours does, (laughs) (laughs) some sort of chronic pancreatitis could create a diabetes mellitus in that patient in the future because of all that uh, scarring. Mm -hmm. And it could also create a problem like exocrine pancreatic insufficiency because the pancreas is not producing the digestive enzymes because the tissue is so damaged that it just doesn't work right anymore. Poor pancreas. Uh, For real. (laughs) Now... Acute and chronic pancreatitis can both slash either be mild or severe, okay? So it's a lot of people think like acute pancreatitis equals really bad and chronic equals not so bad, but that's not necessarily true. Although they do tend to follow a pattern of acute disease being more severe symptoms-wise and chronic disease having more mild long-term symptoms, It doesn't always read the book like that. So the literature is careful to point out that you can't just glance at the patient symptoms-wise, like as far as severity, and say, aha, this is chronic, or aha, this is acute. Um, You could be dealing with either. You would need like further testing to know for sure, and also access like to the pet's history. So what all does the pancreas normally do? So So many things, JJ. (laughs) So the pancreas functions as both an exocrine and an endocrine organ, which is pretty exciting. On the exocrine side, the pancreas is responsible for secreting some important digestive enzymes, specifically those that break down proteins, and these are called protease enzymes. These enzymes include trypsin, chymotrypsin, elastase, carboxypeptidase A and B, and phospholipase A. The enzymes are present in pancreatic acinar cells in their inactive forms. And when they're packaged into these little inactive forms, they're called zymogens, which is a very exciting word. 
Z-Y-M-O-G-E-N-S. Zymogens. It's amazing. Dr. Greider's next cat name. <laughs> that sounds great, actually. This should be a spelling bee word. Like, that's a fantastic word. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Party's over. The st- So this storage of zymogens helps prevent premature activation of these enzymes before they're released into the duodenum because they're digestive enzymes. Generally, you don't want these enzymes digesting the pancreas. So we're going to package them in a little cute bundle and store them away. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, there are also enzyme inhibitors inside the pancreas and in circulation in the plasma that go another step towards preventing premature activation of these digestive enzymes. The zymogens are activated once they enter the duodenum by substances secreted in the duodenal mucosal cells, and this allows them to begin digesting nutrients, which is their job. On the endocrine side, the pancreas is responsible for secreting insulin, famously, (laughs) and glucagon. It's a busy little thing. It is so busy. It's actually an incredibly important organ. I mean, most of your organs are. Like, (laughs) the spleen is kind of disposable. But, you know, everybody else is, like, real critical (laughs) to the situation. Yeah, I was at a doctor's appointment, quick sidebar, the other day. And Mm -hmm. they were asking me, like, what all organs I still had left. They said, it looks like you've had some history of surgery. I said, yeah, I think I've had just about everything that you can take. He goes, you still have your spleen? I was like, oh, yeah, I do still have my spleen. Yeah, You got your uterus, too, don't you? Yeah, you got so many things that they could take out uterus still. Thing. Nobody wants it, including me. <laughs> oh, boy. I forget even why I was talking Is about it, that. I'm worried that they don't know which organs you still possess. Well, it was it was a d- new doctor-ish. Gotcha. The only organ that I know of that I'm missing is my thyroid gland. <laughs> And it had a tumor, so I was like, get the fuck out of here, You've been evicted. That's right. Get out of here. So what happens when the pet has pancreatitis? In pancreatitis, those cute little bundles of joy, the zymogens, accidentally release their enzymes inside the pancreas, and the pancreas starts digesting itself. (gasps) Yeah. Uncool, man. So this could be because those inhibiting substances are blocked. For some reason, they're not active, maybe they're not being made, or the pancreatic enzymes are activated accidentally while they're still inside the pancreas, and then the pancreas begins to eat itself. It's so important, but it's a temperamental <laughs> Literally, shit. yeah, it's bad. Okay, so as the digestive enzymes become inadvertently activated in the pancreas and it begins flipping digesting itself, Obviously, the pancreatic membranes become disrupted, okay? We also are going to see dilation of the little arterioles inside the pancreas. We're going to get increased vascular permeability. We're going to get a swollen pancreas, so edema. And then it might hemorrhage because it's being slowly digested. It sounds like it needs to set some healthy boundaries for the digestive (laughs) process because it is too overworked. Do you know what this reminds me of? (laughs) What? The Sarlacc pit, while you'd be slowly digested over a thousand years. Uh, what the fuck? Sorry. Okay, back to the pancreas. Okay, so obviously, because the pancreas is flipping being digested, 
it's going to hurt. So we get pain response. The uh, immune system's like, what the fuck? And sends white blood cells in there. Okay, so (laughs) infiltration by leukocytes. And then part of it starts to flip and die because it's being eaten alive. Okay, so necrosis. And it starts like in the fat around the pancreas, the peripancreatic fat. We also can get necrosis of the actual pancreas because the blood flow has been reduced and because all those damn white blood cells are hanging out in there. Okay. We can get secondary infection potentially because of the bacterial translocation from the intestines. We're also going to get arterial hypotension, blood pooling in the venous system, and hypovolemia. And this could lead to shock in patients that are severely affected. Mm. Now, the damage to the pancreas is made worse by peripheral venoconstriction and leakage of pancreatic enzymes into the abdominal cavity and the vascular compartment. Extensive tissue destruction can occur any place where the pancreatic enzymes have been inappropriately released. And that might look like damage to the liver, the kidneys, lungs, heart, and the abdominal lymphatic system. Damn. Yeah. And the swelling associated with pancreatitis could cause the pancreas to swell to the point that it pushes on the biliary tract and you can get extra hepatic biliary obstruction as a result. (laughs) So that's good. When it fucks up, it fucks up. That's right. And then in kitty cats, Mm. they have a unique anatomy in which the pancreatic and bile ducts merge together before they reach that duodenal papilla where they empty out into the intestine. And this unique anatomy makes kitties at risk for ascending biliary infections and bile reflux. Mm. Um, So they're more likely to get infections associated with their pancreatitis than than dogs. So how does pancreatitis happen? Well, uh, the long story short is, uh, we don't know for sure. Mm. Okay. So in acute pancreatitis, cause usually unknown. We do know about risk factors for pancreatitis. Okay, so for fatal acute cases of pancreatitis, so the patient is super sick and they die from it. If you're overweight, you're more likely to have that. If you already have diabetes, okay, Mm -hmm. that's what our patient has, so that's not great. Mm -mm. If you got Cushing's disease, hypothyroidism, a history of epilepsy, which was interesting. (laughs) We'll get to that here in just a second when we talk about medications that might be associated. A prior history of GI disease, okay? Mm -hmm. And then ingestion of any unusual or human foods in one study. And I'm like, okay, so in the one study plus every anecdotal report in history. I'm saying. I feel like mine often have a history of ingestion of food. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in looking at the literature and things, it's kind of like, well, how often do pet owners feed human food in general? And is that a coincidence? So, like, if they come in for a wellness exam, are you like, have you fed any people food recently? You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So you might... It might be a one-off thing. Like, yeah, I fed peanut butter last night, but how many dogs had peanut butter last night that didn't get pancreatitis, you know? So after thinking about it that way, I was like, okay, I can kind of see, you know. But Mm -hmm. anyway, in my book, I see pancreatitis, you know, clustered around the holidays, which Mm -hmm. is why we did it for our Thanksgiving episode. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I feel like there's a strong anecdotal connection yeah yeah and i think stress has been one that i've heard a lot too which also is around the holidays yeah 
And I don't know that stress was in my research as far as like something that's been measured, Mm -hmm. but also don't know like how you would ascertain that. I mean, you can't have the dog fill out like a survey (laughs) like you would in people. (laughs) Right. So you could only poll people about has something stressful happened. Yeah. Um, So anyway, so other potential risks Mm -hmm. might be high fat diet, history of malnutrition. If we've got elevated triglycerides already. If we have ingested toxins like zinc or organophosphates, the presence of hypercalcemia or elevated calcium in the blood. If you have a pancreatic duct obstruction, that makes sense because then the little zymogens can't mm-hmm. get outside of there. Okay. Anytime there is reflux of the duodenal contents back into the pancreatic duct, and that makes sense because all those little activating substances that the duodenal cells secrete might reflux back up into the pancreas and then it'd be like pew 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 <laughs> the zymogens be popping okay pancreatic trauma so surgical manipulation there was actually a time when like and i don't know that this is necessarily true anymore but like early in my career and when i was in that school they used to actually teach like even if you're doing exploratory like do not manhandle the pancreas. Mm-hmm. You may glance at it gently, mm-hmm. but don't touch that motherfucker. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, um, so yeah, you gotta be careful. Definitely been part of different surgeries where the doctor would be like, "See this right here? That's the pancreas. If you see my hands going anywhere near it, say stop." Yeah. I'm like, uh, okay, <laughs> sure. Uh, blunt trauma. Okay, mm-hmm. so if you, I guess, like, got hit in the abdomen or something, you kicked my pancreas. That's right. You baseball bat to the pancreas. Okay. Uh, If you got parasites, uh, particularly like liver flukes, uh, any type of hepatobiliary disease, okay, so liver, gallbladder disease, small intestinal disorders, if you have had some sort of problem with your circulation and blood flow got cut off to the pancreas, Mm. so pancreatic ischemia or reperfusion injury. And the one that I'm thinking of off the top of my head would be like heat stroke, right, Mm -hmm. if you get through all that then potentially you could have other organ systems impacted. Okay, mm-hmm. but that's not the only one, but it's the one that comes to mind right away. And then Babesia, <laughs> specifically the one, the Babesia rossi. And there was a note that like other Babesia species are much less likely to be associated. <laughs> I don't know. Weird. And then potentially drugs. Okay, so ones that we know are associated with the development of pancreatitis are thiazide diuretics, furosemide, azathioprine, L-asparaginase, sulfonamides, tetracycline, bromide, and phenobarbital. Mm. Those last two are seizure medications, Mm -hmm. which is why I think a history of epilepsy is on that list of predisposing factors, which is interesting. Makes sense. What about steroids? Well, steroids don't seem to have increased risk. Mm. And then for chronic pancreatitis, again, usually the cause is unknown. Uh, recurring episodes of acute pancreatitis are the one thing that we know for sure can can create this. And in English Cocker Spaniels, there is a particular form of pancreatitis, chronic pancreatitis, that's thought to be immune-mediated. Mm. And the reason they think that is that the pancreatic duct destruction is similar to what's seen in autoimmune pancreatitis in people patients. Interesting. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the physical exam findings that we would expect to see in a patient with pancreatitis. Okay. Possible history of dietary indiscretion, toxin exposure or drug administration, um, fever, abdominal pain, palpable abdominal mass, depression, dehydration, increased heart rate, 
increased respiratory rate, icterus, ascites, prolonged capillary refill time, petechiation, tachymucous membranes, hypothermia, or fever. Patients with secondary bile duct obstruction may be icteric, and some patients may be presented in shock. Yeah. And when we look at the literature, we see that about 90% of patients with pancreatitis present with vomiting. And mm-hmm. abdominal pain is present in about 58% of dogs with pancreatitis. We're going to be looking at things like lethargy, anorexia, diarrhea, that abdominal pain that JJ was talking about. Sometimes they're restless, you know, mm-hmm. and just can't seem to get comfortable. Owners will describe like pacing or inability to just settle down. And then blood in the vomit or in the stool. If they are super severely affected, we might have collapse and um, they might come in just like freaking out of it, obtunded. Mm. Okay. Diabetes mellitus is the most common concurrent disease that we see in dogs presenting with pancreatitis, as in our patient today, our case. And then you might see evidence of a coagulopathy, as JJ said, the petechia. You might see concurrent hepatobiliary disease and acute kidney insult might be present in severe cases. So what sort of uh, test results would we expect to see? There are lots of potential tests that we could consider for pancreatitis. So this part is maybe going to be a little long. I'm going to try to cut. I'm going to try to stick to the most important facts. Mm -hmm. But if you are listening to this podcast and you want specifics about each section, I'm going to encourage you to go to the literature or grab your internal medicine book or your ECC book and just take a look because this section could be like an hour long if we let it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's just start with the complete blood count. Okay. Well, you might see nothing. Mm -hmm. Okay. But a lot of the time you will see a neutrophilia with a left shift. So in one study of 70 dogs with severe pancreatitis, 55% of the cases had that neutrophilia with a left shift, okay? In that study, they found that there was a more guarded prognosis in dogs that had toxic changes to white blood cells. And if the patient was anemic or had thrombocytopenia, then those were early indicators of DIC or disseminated intravascular coagulation developing. Um, Other things that you might see would be low white blood cell count. If, for example, all of those neutrophils are rushing to the pancreas and the body hasn't had a chance to make more yet, okay? And hemoconcentration uh, from being dehydrated. So on a biochemistry profile, there are a lot of things that you might see, okay? (laughs) So we're just going to kind of do a quick hit and review here. So you might see azotemia, okay? So that's elevated BUN and creatinine, and that's going to be most of the time from dehydration, but sometimes these dogs get associated acute kidney insult, acute renal failure, and it could be from that too. You're going to have elevation of liver enzymes, okay, potentially. Elevated bilirubin, especially if the pancreas is so swollen that it's pinching off the bile duct, you might have changes in the blood sugar, okay? So if you uh, have a pancreatic inflammation, sometimes it's not producing insulin as well, and so you might have a mild hyperglycemia, okay? That's even in patients that don't have diabetes. Cholesterol and triglycerides are often elevated. You could also see decreases in calcium. 
blood protein levels, including albumin, and changes in the electrolytes. Now, electrolyte changes might be all over the map, but most of the time they tend to be decreased. Amylase and lipase could be normal. You never want to rule pancreatitis out if they're normal, but they also a lot of times will be elevated like in our case today. Studies show that serum amylase is normal in up to 47% of dogs with pancreatitis that's ultimately confirmed with histology. So amylase is not a sensitive like indicator, okay? Yet it used to be the defining factor for diagnosing pancreatitis back in the day. Yeah, we just have better tests now and mm-hmm. more accessible imaging. Mm-hmm. But so just remember, if it walks like a duck, don't rule it out if the amylase is normal. Let's see. The reason that the reason that the amylase might be normal, even if pancreatitis is pretty excitingly bad, is that amylase is made by other tissues. Okay, so it's just not it's not specific for pancreatitis, um, and so then also elevations in amylase don't mean the pet has pancreatitis. So you just mm-hmm. have to be careful there. Serum lipase has been found to be normal in up to 61% of dogs with pancreatitis. <laughs> okay. Now, lipase can also be elevated in patients without pancreatitis uh, who have other disorders. And those include things like GI foreign bodies or just inflammation of the stomach or gastritis. Because lipase is produced by the gastric mucosa, It can be elevated with gastric inflammation that has nothing to do with the pancreas. Okay, the last part of our minimum database is a urinalysis, often overlooked but very important type of test. That's right. So um, if we have azotemia, looking at the urine concentration, the urine-specific gravity, can give us a good idea if this is pre-renal or renal in origin. If we have an azotemia and that pet's urine is super concentrated, we can feel like, hmm, kidneys probably work okay. This is probably dehydration, okay? Because acute kidney injury can occur along with pancreatitis, we need to, keep, we need to stay on the lookout for any changes in the urine, like all of a sudden I'm not urinating at all, or I am making way, way less urine than I would expect based on Uh, how much fluid we're putting into the dog and things like that while we're getting through treatment. You might also need to be on the lookout for like protein and casts, things like that. We might see sugar or ketones in the urine if the patient has diabetes concurrently. Okay, it would not (laughs) shock me at all if our patient had that kind of thing going on, Mm -hmm. if they checked it. And if we look at the urine and we see sugar in the urine, we always need to check the blood sugar too and just like correlate those because if you have a normal blood sugar but there's sugar in the urine, that can be an indicator that the kidney has been insulted. (laughs) The kidney is... Just visualize the kitty like, (sighs) really? (laughs) I am insulted. My kidney is taking off its glove and slapping you in the face. How dare you talk about my mother? (laughs) Sometimes we need to do coagulation testing in these guys, okay? They might be abnormal if we got the DIC happening. So pancreatitis can cause both increased clotting and decreased clotting, okay? Make up your mind. So you might have a difficult time clotting or you might be so hypercoagulable that you're in DIC, okay? Mm. Now, in one study of 70 cases of pancreatitis, 61% had abnormal coagulation function test results. That's actually really surprising to Mm -hmm. me because I have to say, like, I don't, 
reflexively check coags on pancreatitis cases. Mm-mm. But now I'm wondering if I need to make that That's change. That's a pretty big number. I'm, I might need to ask the internist about that. And so I'm going to make a note in my brain to ask the internist uh, whether that should be kind of a reflex test if we think it's pancreatitis. And I will report back depending on what I find out. <laughs> okay. If we were checking a test like canine trypsin-like immunoreactivity, we might see that it is elevated. Okay. But the sensitivity for this test for pancreatitis in dogs is only around 35%, mm. which makes it not a great option for testing for and diagnosing pancreatitis. Now, it is a really good test for exocrine pancreatic insufficiency. So that's what we want to reach for if we were worried about that. Okay. Pancreatic lipase immunoreactivity is probably the most useful diagnostic test in both the dog and the cat. The reason that I put both of those tests in the podcast is because they're often confused for one another. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, although a number of different organs can create lipases, CPLI measures lipase that only originates from exocrine pancreas tissue. Sensitivity for specific CPL measurement is 80 to 93%. That's pretty darn good. It does have a lower sensitivity in dogs with mild pancreatitis compared to dogs with moderate pancreatitis. Okay, so you just have to keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. A negative test does not rule it out, but a positive test in a dog with symptoms is like, "Mm, girl, what? (laughs) Okay, exactly, exactly. So um, let's talk about the SNAP CPL test, okay? Mm -hmm. So sensitivity that's been reported for the SNAP CPL is 82% in one study. Um, And in another study, it ranged from 91 to 94%. That's pretty good, (laughs) okay? Specificity ranged uh, from 59 to 77%. So, okay, all right. There are a number of ways that CPL can be tested. We've got um, the SNAP test. We've got specific CPL. We've got vet scan, the rapid test. We've got precision PSL. And in a study comparing those, there was pretty good agreement between the four assays. Okay. Sweet. Now, both false positive and false negative results are possible. You would never want to interpret a CPLI assay alone without any other supportive clinical findings. So you don't want to just run this test willy-nilly, okay? Mm -hmm. It's only really useful when a dog has active symptoms. Okay, let's say your patient has got free abdominal fluid. Mm -hmm. You could draw that fluid and measure the lipase activity in that abdominal fluid. It's pretty Mm -hmm. exciting. Yeah. Okay. This is a reliable marker of acute pancreatitis, okay? Lipase is significantly higher in dogs with acute pancreatitis than in those of other causes of ascites. Like if you got a dog with cardiac disease, their lipase in that fluid is not going to measure super high. Mm-hmm. Pancreatitis, it will. So that'll help you kind of decide what is this fluid from, potentially. Mm-hmm. Additionally, if you have fluid in the belly from trauma or cancer, you're not going to expect the lipase in that fluid to be significantly high. So it can help there, too. Also, while you're drawing the fluid, you might as well stick it under a microscope, okay? <laughs> Most of the time, if we have fluid secondary to pancreatitis, we're going to have some neutrophils up in there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Makes sense. Does make sense. Okay. X-rays. X-rays <laughs> of the little belly. <laughs> so we might see a loss of serosal detail or suggestion of a mass in the cranial abdomen, just Sounds like familiar. in our case. That's right. 
You might also see transposition of the abdominal organs, okay? So like the duodenum is dorsal and to the right and the stomach is to the left and then the transverse colon uh, might be caudally, you know, <laughs> kind of strange. <laughs> and then also you might see uh, some mineralization like calcification of the pancreas, especially if we have like a chronic pancreatitis going on. Mm -hmm. If we're talking about imaging of the belly dough, ultrasound is much better at picking up pancreatitis than x-rays alone. The glowing pancreas. Absolutely. Absolutely. So if we're talking about acute pancreatitis, the pancreas is going to be plump. It might be hypoechoic, surrounded by a hyperechoic area, which is the peripancreatic fat necrosis. Okay. Mm -hmm. Other abnormalities we might see, you know, free fluid in there, okay? Maybe the pancreas has a weird texture, like it's thick looking, okay? We might be able to look at the bile duct and be like, ooh, that looks big, okay? <laughs> uh, we might see a big gallbladder if maybe that um, bile duct is pinched off and the gallbladder is getting all huge, okay? Potentially some sort of a mass, okay? Abscess or a cyst on the pancreas. And then if you're really talented at stomach ultrasound, which I don't know that I am, I can find the pancreas most of the time if it's pissed off, but I don't know that I'm good at looking at the stomach wall yet. But if you are, you could see gastric wall edema, okay? <laughs> In one study of dogs with pancreatitis, using an ultrasound to detect it was about 68% sensitive, <laughs> okay? In another study of 157 dogs, so a little bit bigger study, Sensitivity was 43% and specificity was 92% for pancreatitis if the pancreas was big, hyperechoic areas were noted and there was weird echogenicity in the mesentery. If all three of those were present, then the um, specificity was a lot higher. Hmm. Okay. In chronic pancreatitis, that might be where the pancreas itself looks hyperechoic. Thinking back to what they reported in our case, if that pancreas truly was hyperechoic and it wasn't just the peripancreatic fat that was glowing, maybe this is more of a chronic case, okay? Yeah. The dog does have diabetes. I mean, mm -hmm. maybe, okay? That hyperechoic pancreatic appearance is from that fibrosis that happens in chronic disease. What if our dog has been having bouts of pancreatitis and that's what led to his diabetes? Possible. It's an interesting thought. Interesting thought. That's what they say was going on with my old cat, Raven, which we talked about during the diabetes episode. Mm -hmm. That was all the way back in season one. That was mm -hmm. like our third episode or something. Poor Raven. Ray Ray. Yeah. Yeah. In kitties that are really, really hard to control like she was, that a lot of the time will be the case. Mm -hmm. Those insulin-dependent cats are tricky. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Basically. The ones that aren't making any insulin at all anymore is tough. Okay. Now. If the ultrasound shows no weird pancreatic findings, that does not mean that the patient does not have pancreatitis. Okay, so <laughs> the ultrasound cannot be used to rule out a pancreatitis. It can be used to build a case that either supports or does not support the presence of pancreatitis. And then if you're feeling super extra, you could do a CT scan <laughs> with angiography. <laughs> Um, to look for acute pancreatitis or to look for the necrosis. And I'm going to be honest with you, like, I think 
CT is pretty standard now in human medicine, and I don't think we're there in animal medicine yet. Like, no, <laughs> it requires anesthesia. Like, there's so many more barriers to it than there are for people. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, that's a tough sell. Yeah, maybe if we couldn't find anything else wrong and everything else was fine and nothing pointed to pancreatitis, and we were doing a CT as like a last resort. Maybe. Okay. And you had an owner that'd be like, yes, do anything and everything. It'd be interesting to revisit this podcast in 20 years and see how my opinion might have changed. <laughs> Maybe in 20 years, CT will have evolved to the point that it's like 20 cupcakes. And then you're like, boom, 20 cupcakes. Easy, you know, no big deal. Well, that'd be nice. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, we said earlier, you know, that we want to keep the pancreas happy and not mess with it. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? Um, histopathology <laughs> via biopsy is the only gold standard test for diagnosis of pancreatitis. So you're going to snatch it, <laughs> cut it. Just real quick whip it around it realizes it. Okay. Get it out of there before it can dump its flipping little tiny packages. Okay. Still its cup. <laughs> this pancreas is going to duel with us later. It is. It's going to do 10 paces. Like, I'm so mad at you. I'm going to eat myself. That's right. Okay, look. So maybe this is like when you're going to exploratory. Okay, you got mm-hmm. the real sick dog. You're like, I do not know what's going on. All my tests are normal. We take the dog to exploratory to let the demons out and maybe find that foreign object that we've convinced ourselves is there. We don't find it. But then we're looking at everything. We're like, that pancreas don't look right. <laughs> So then we're going to biopsy it, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, this is um, the only really way to definitively diagnose it. And the only way to definitively say this is acute versus chronic, because that's the only way you can see the fibrosis, mm-hmm. right? So um, there are some additional tests that you might run across when you're reading about pancreatitis. Maybe one in particular uh, that I want to mention is C-reactive protein. It might be elevated. It's a marker of inflammation, but it's nonspecific, Okay. Mm-hmm. There are others. I think that the ones that we've been over are kind of like the main ones. So we'll just leave it there. If you are listening and have more questions about all the types of testing that you might consider when you're dealing with this type of patient, grab a book, man. Mm -hmm. Read about it. When we think about dogs that are predisposed to pancreatitis, what sorts of breeds are predisposed and what sorts of other things might make a dog more likely to get this? Apparently, there was a study that suggested. Dogs that are a little older may be more predisposed. Mm-hmm. Yep. As far as breeds go, uh, poor miniature schnauzers. Uh, number one star. Mm-hmm. The mini schnauzer. Yep. Yep. They're just an endocrine nightmare. Or exocrine, both. Who knows? <laughs> Definitely <laughs> endocrine nightmare, mm-hmm. I feel like, on the schnauzer. There's a mess. Dotsons, mini poodles. King Charles Cavalier, okay. Cocker Spaniels, Collies, Boxers, Yorkies, Fox Terriers, Terriers in general. Mm-hmm. So uh, spayed females and castrated males had an increased risk in one study. Most of the patients are middle-aged. So how do we go about treating pancreatitis? Woo, JJ. Huh? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I was ready for a marathon. Okay. Go to the kitchen sink get them. That's right. Well, so... um. Look, historically, pancreatitis has been treated with supportive care, okay? Mm -hmm. Like, even when you read some relatively recent sources, they're going to be like, there's no specific treatment for pancreatitis, yada, 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 okay? Now, now I'm kind of on the fence about whether that's true because we have this new medication that we are going to cover. 
and we don't know a lot about it yet, or at least I don't. I have only used it, I think, in like one single case so far. Um, so we're going to read about it there. I don't really know if it qualifies for like specific pancreatitis treatment or if it's still kind of maybe still in the supportive range. But we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it. Okay. Okay. But historically, treatment has been supportive. And when we are providing the supportive care, what uh, we're hoping to do here is to restore perfusion to the tissues, to limit the bacterial movement into places that it's not supposed to be, and to just help the pet generally feel better and decrease the effects, um, both local and systemic, of the pancreatitis. Now, the degree to which the patient needs support varies depending on the severity of disease. We talked about earlier how some patients will seem like they're not that sick and some are like on death's doorstep pretty Mm -hmm. fast, okay? So, You always want to titrate your level of intervention to how the pet is presenting and then also take into account like their overall situation. How many other comorbidities did they have and things like that. Sometimes we can manage them even on an outpatient basis. If I have one that's still eating and drinking, a lot of times I will do that if they're a little high stress fluff ball thing, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, But then other times they need intensive care and like round the clock supervision. So. In reading about treating pancreatitis, I ran across something that I had never, ever heard of before. Hmm. And so I thought we would include it in this episode. Do tell. It is something called Kirby's Rule of 20. Have you ever heard of this? Mm-mm. Okay. I'm, that makes me feel a little bit better that I'm, like, not alone. Okay. <laughs> so um, when I was looking up information for this episode... I saw in several places, like, don't forget Kirby's Rule of 20. Use Kirby's Rule of 20 to guide the things that you would want to provide for supportive care. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? Like, I have never, ever heard of this. Okay, so. Who the fuck Kirby? Well, okay. Her name is Rebecca Kirby, apparently. Mm. She's a vet. Um, It looks like she is an internist. So she's a diplomat of the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine. Oh, and a veterinary and critical care. So she's a double-boarded internist ECC oh. doctor. That's pretty impressive, actually. Fancy. And from uh, to the bit be- and to the best of my ability to figure it out, I think she published this in 2016, hmm. which might make sense as to why I've never heard of it <laughs> because I was out of vet school at that time, and 2016 was a little bit of a rough year for me mm-hmm. <laughs> as far as like major life crises all happening at once. Mm-hmm. So it's not that surprising that maybe <laughs> I missed the memo on this. Okay. So um, if you guys have questions about that, definitely look it up. But I'm just going to read to you uh, what Kirby listed as the top 20 things that you need to do. Now, this is not pancreatitis specific. This is for any patient who is coming into the hospital and needs intensive care. Okay, Mm -hmm. I'm just going to read them. Okay, so number one, fluid balance and colloidal osmotic pressure support oxygenation and ventilation, blood pressure, heart rate, rhythm and contractility, blood sugar, albumin, electrolyte and acid base status, mentation and attitude, red blood cell and hemoglobin concentration, GI motility and mucosal integrity, nutrition, kidney function coagulation and clotting ability, immune status and antibiotic dosage, drug dosages 
uh, and taking into account the pet's unique metabolism or metabolic needs. Mm -hmm. Pain control, nursing and patient mobilization, wound care and bandage changes, and TLC. Mm. So um, I think that's actually a pretty good list. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to add this, I think, to my like collection of ER materials because I do kind of have a mental checklist that I go through when I'm thinking about a patient that's like, have I done pain control? Haven't I given it a GI protectant? You know, like stuff like that. But this is a really good way to to get a comprehensive view of like, here are all the things I need to make sure that I put orders in to assess. Mm. So if you're like me and have never heard of that before. Checklist. Look at that. It's a pre-made checklist. Okay. Let's talk about Panaquil. Okay. Panaquil is a novel intervention. Mm. It is a new pancreatitis medicine. And I say that with quotes, quote, pancreatitis medicine, quote. Okay. Panaquil is the brand name. The drug name I super cannot pronounce. <laughs> and I looked up how to pronounce it and I couldn't find anyone pronouncing it online. <laughs> so I will give it my best college try and then I'll spell it for you and then we'll put it in the show notes. Okay. Sounds good. Okay. Um, so if I was going to guess how to say this, whew, I would say yeah, I think that's my final answer. Mm. Fusaplidib. Okay, it's F-U-Z-A-P-L-I-D-I-B. Sodium hydrate. Okay? IDK. Sounds good to me. Yeah. So this drug antagonizes lymphocyte function associated antigen 1 or LFA1. Why do we care about that? Okay, well, LFA1 is an integrin found on the surface of leukocytes. and um, it plays a key role in leukocytes homing or going to where they're supposed to go. And so, you know, if we're targeting this, we can kind of decrease that uh, white blood cell invasion of the pancreas. Now, LFA1 also has a role in antibody-mediated and cytotoxic T-cell-mediated killing, okay? So if we can block LFA1, we can impair the ability of white blood cells to activate and stick to the endothelial cell surface, okay? We can then limit migration because LFA1 is prevented from interacting with the glycoprotein receptor. I'll also include some information from the manufacturer. This is from May 2023, okay? This is truly hot off the presses here, just a few months that this has really been out. I'm going to read from the package insert, and I'm going to give a quote, okay? So from the Panaquil package insert, quote, The first and only drug conditionally approved by the FDA to treat acute canine pancreatitis. Panaquil CA1 is labeled for the management of clinical signs associated with acute onset of canine pancreatitis. In the pilot field study for conditional FDA approval, the dogs receiving the medication were shown to have an improved clinical score over dogs receiving symptomatic care alone. Panaquil CA1 is the first and only drug conditionally approved in the U.S. to address the inflammation associated with acute onset of canine pancreatitis. It is approved to be used in the presence of other types of supportive care. And it's given via injection once a day for three days. Okay, it is an IV injection. And then they do list some precautions. So obviously, you wouldn't want to give it in a dog with a known hypersensitivity. Although, like, how would you know it's a brand new drug? Mm -hmm. But anyway, 
You also want to be cautious in dogs who have cardiac disease, a history of hepatic failure, or kidney disease. We don't want to use it in dogs who are pregnant, lactating, or intended for breeding purposes. I'm guessing because they haven't studied it then. Mm -hmm. That's usually the reason they put this, Mm -hmm. but uh, don't quote me on that because I don't have any research either (laughs) way. Okay, and then it's not approved for dogs less than six months of age. So I've used this in a single case. Um, The case got better. Okay, (laughs) that's all I got. (laughs) I don't have any other further information about it. It is uh, lots of cupcakes in my experience, but all new drugs are, I feel like. Yeah, that's, yeah. They will be for a little while and then they settle down, but yeah. So my current philosophy and what I'm doing, because I see a lot of pancreatitis cases, is I try to educate the owners about it. I make sure they know it's a new drug, that it's conditionally approved, that we might not fully understand all of the pros and cons of it at this time. Here is the cost, and we'll definitely do supportive care, but this I kind of offer as an option and let the owners decide. Why no? Okay, so besides that new treatment, what else can we do? Okay, well, supportive care. Fluid therapy is really going to be one of the most critical components of treatment for pancreatitis. Mm -hmm. Now, if you uh, have just a mild case, we might be able to get away with sub-Q fluids. But my patients who are sick, not eating, you know, really, really down, they they need IV fluids and they need like some pretty aggressive uh, doses. Okay. So we need to supply maintenance needs, but then also correct dehydration by uh, anticipating future losses and kind of knowing like how much have they already lost to try to get them back up to speed. Okay. Dogs who have signs of shock need higher rates of fluids like shock rate doses. Fluid calculations are unique to the individual and have changed a lot in the past 20 years. Okay. So if you haven't recently, go ahead and get out your favorite textbook. Go ahead and get out your like aha guidelines and things like that, ECC guidelines even, about how are we going to calculate fluid replacement needs and rehydrate the patient so that they live and get better and thrive, hopefully, (laughs) but that we don't overload them fluid-wise or correct things too quickly, okay? Mm -hmm. So definitely grab your book for this. Now, with IV fluid therapy, we need to keep a real close eye on albumin because if albumin is getting low, then we need to provide colloid support. So like we might need to give the patient plasma or we might need to give them head of starch. Potassium. Our patient who we talked about earlier has got kind of a low normal potassium. As we're rehydrating that guy, that potassium is going to go lower. And then if we're not careful and we're not supplementing appropriately, we can give that patient life-threatening low potassium mm-hmm. and fuck up real bad. <laughs> so, so what we need to do, uh, there is in every critical care textbook on VIN, anywhere you go, you're going to get your chart out, okay? Your potassium supplementation chart. So you're going to look at that sucker and you're going to be like, okay, here's where the dog's serum potassium is now. Here's the rate at which I need to add to fluids. Here's the rate of that that I cannot exceed. When I was fresh out of school, I don't remember there being such a chart. We had to just calculate it for every patient. It was so stressful. Guess what? Now there's a chart. You just look at it and be like, boom, 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 girl. Yeah. All right. So you can kind of think in your head when you've done it a while, like I have, you can kind of guess like for this one, I'm probably going to add 20 milli equivalents to this liter bag. So you kind of have your idea in your head. Then you go look at the chart and just make sure that you're not wrong. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so with that double check, you can make sure. Okay. Um, I don't even do the longhand calculation anymore. I just like, I'm like, yeah, that sounds right. And I look and I'm like, yeah, that's what the chart says. Let's do that. Okay. Sounds good. 
We might also need to add glucose to the fluids, okay? Because mm-hmm. a lot of these guys will have a mild hyperglycemia, but sometimes they'll have a low blood sugar even, okay? Because they haven't eaten in a few days. And we got this like teacup Yorkie thing, you know, like, you know, that thing needs mm-hmm. some glucose. Okay. <laughs> yeah, always. If you do end up supplementing colloids and you're using something like head of starch, you also need to be really, really careful that you're dosing it appropriately and you got to be cautious and tiptoe with the fluids a little bit because anytime you're you know, using head of starch in a patient and they have a low protein, third spacing is a possibility. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to be looking at that dog's respiratory rate and effort like often, like every <laughs> two hours and be like, Ben, are you breathing hard? Like, <laughs> no, you know, are is your lungs sounding all crappy? Okay, well, we're reducing your fluid rate. Okay. <laughs> Uh, the next big thing for me is going to be preventing more vomiting because mm-hmm. vomiting is my least favorite illness of all time when I have it. So I'm sure my pets probably feel the same way. Serenia. I really like Serenia. Yeah. JJ's right. She's singing the correct jingle, I think. Okay. <laughs> yep. I just love Serenia. I mean, I love it so much. Mm-hmm. Okay. It probably has some analgesic effects. It has some anti-inflammatory effects that we don't even fully understand. Like, give the dog Serenia. Mm-hmm. Give it. Okay. I'll give it IV so fast, girl. I'll give it so fast. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I start the dog on Serenia. No, no question. I think that that is pronounced meropotent. But I have a tendency yeah. to read it meripotent. Yeah, I've heard it pronounced both ways. Yeah. That's one I really have only heard a few times out loud and have mostly read mm-hmm. it. So we know what I'm like when it's like that. <laughs> it's not good. <laughs> Clop a dog roll. Um, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> okay. So that one's my favorite. Okay. Are there other ones? Sure, girl. There are other ones. Okay. You can even use them together. So something like a metoclopramide CRI. Intermittent metoclopramide is less effective. If you're going to use metoclopramide, go ahead and put it in a bag and just do a CRI, mm-hmm. okay? Um, you could do uh, dilazitron on dancitron, something like that. When we're looking at doses, get your book out, okay? Calculate it. Chlorpromazine I even ran across in the literature. I've never even seen that in real life, so I don't know. I've never used it, but it was in the literature, so you could think about that. <laughs> While we're talking about GI meds, we're going to put this dog on GI protectants, okay? So antacid therapy. You know, H2 blockers um, or proton pump inhibitors, I'm going to say that I have like a personal preference for pantoprazole, uh, a.k.a. protonics. Like when I'm at a clinic that has it, that's what I tend to use. Why? I don't know. I just think that they do better. Do I have data? No, I don't have any data. (laughs) I don't have any data to back that up. Okay. Any data. I, uh, before... uh, I've worked in clinics with pantoprazole. I use famotidine a lot. I mm-hmm. think that was fine, too. Okay. I didn't run across a lot of, like, sucralfate use when I was going through the literature, but I do kind of put them on sucralfate, okay, once they get to the point where they can tolerate it. Mm-hmm. It's not, like, my top-of-the-list medication. If the patient is really hesitant to take things orally, I'm not going to force the issue. But, like, if they'll tolerate it, I also kind of, start that too mm-hmm. i don't know i didn't find anything about it in my research though really for pancreatitis i think because like it's unusual to get a stomach ulcer when you're having it but like i don't know i feel like with all of the vomiting then they get all of that acid in the esophagus what mm-hmm. i have seen is severe esophagitis from pancreatitis cases and i don't know once you see severe esophagitis once you're just like bitch no we are not going down that road <laughs> so i feel like i feel like it the sucralfate coats the esophagus too and not just the stomach. Do I have data 
I don't. That is just a clinical sentiment. I am going to put that out there. But it's inexpensive and it's a relatively safe drug. So I go for it. Go for it. Go for it. Okay. What about antibiotics? This is a tricky one. Mm -hmm. And if you read proceedings from talks, if you read book chapters, things like that, there is disagreement about this. Okay. There is. There always is with antibiotics. Yeah, I know. So, okay. So, (laughs) so tough. I don't know that we can say that there is any sort of direct evidence that there's a tremendous risk for bacterial infection in pancreatitis cases that are run of the mill. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, do I use antibiotics in cases of pancreatitis? Yeah, man, sometimes I do. Okay. Do I use it in everyone? No. Okay. Like, how do I decide? Well, if they got a fever, if they have blood in the stool, I kind of think like, well, we're going to have some translocation Mm -hmm. from the GI tract, right? I feel I feel good about that. Okay, they get a really high white blood cell count or really low white blood cell count. Either one, I'm probably going to use them then. Generally, does the patient look real fucking sick? I'm probably going to use them then. Okay, if the patient is otherwise like da 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 da, I'm just vomiting, but otherwise I'm okay. (laughs) Then I don't know that I'll use them in that case. Um, so I think that's kind of where the art side of veterinary medicine comes in. Okay, why would we not want to use antibiotics? Well, they can mess up the microbiome, okay, for like weeks to months. So a long time ago, 15, 20 years ago, we were like, eh, antibiotics, not gonna hurt nothing. But now we know that actually monkeying with the GI flora has long-term consequences, okay? (laughs) So it's not fantastic. Mm -hmm. So what I'll say is that the in the literature, in proceedings, in book chapters, the things that were relatively consistent was like this. If the patient comes in in shock or develops shock, start antibiotics. If you got a fever, start antibiotics. If you got signs of sepsis, start <laughs> antibiotics. Okay. Right away. Exactly. Right away. Okay. Pain medicine. Mm. Dogs with pancreatitis need pain medicine generally. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, We talked about some statistics of abdominal pain earlier, probably underreported because the dog cannot communicate with us Mm -hmm. unless we teach it that pain button, you know, like pain, pain, pain. Or the thing we talked about. um, Ooh, that device. uh Oh, yeah. That was like lasted. This is the most recent Uh episode. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So we could put that device that I don't remember the name of it on. (laughs) Me either. Potentially. But anyway, y'all, hey. If you haven't listened to last week, listen to last week, you can hear about the pain detecting device. Mm-hmm. Okay, so opiates, those are a good option. I would not use anti-inflammatory, like NSAIDs, no. I would not use NSAIDs in a pancreatitis case. That seems wild. Mm-mm. So I would uh, give the dog opiates, mm-hmm. okay? The opiates, dealer's choice. <laughs> oh, I didn't mean to make a pun. That's kind of a... <laughs> It's a morbid. Look, I did not mean to make that pun. That's a morbid pun. But I meant card dealer's choice. You know what? Yes. Just you're digging a hole. Do I need to read? No, I think that's funny. Oh, I don't. Please don't send me a mean email about that. Okay. All right. God. Okay. Uh, Should we give steroids? Mm, It's controversial. I don't know that I do. Okay. I, I don't really. Not unless I'm like. Well, I mean, definitely not in our diabetic patient, no. Mm-hmm. But, like, um, if I can be significantly convinced the dog has got underlying inflammatory bowel disease, sure, okay. 
But in uh, besides that, nah. Okay, now, if it's a cat, if it's a kitty cat, I might be convinced to get a little steroids. If it's not getting better in any other way. <laughs> and I review all the risks with the owner. And I let them know that once we start steroids, we can't then go get biopsies, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. What I'll say, bottom line, is I'm more prone to think about starting a little steroid on a kitty than I am with a dog. And even with a kitty, I pump the brakes a good bit before we go to that. Like yeah. They have to fail other therapy before I go there. Mm-hmm. We have some studies that show that there are lower CRP levels on day three of hospitalization and earlier improvement of clinical signs in dogs receiving steroids at a dose of one mg per kg per day. Okay. And then in the dogs receiving prednisolone, the mortality rate one month after discharge was also lower, Hmm. which is interesting. And it was like a good bit lower like 11% mortality in the treated group versus 46% mortality in the untreated group. It just goes back to the whole no dog should die without the benefit <laughs> of steroids. It's true. So, like, I, you know, I think, again, the, like, consensus is eh, we don't reach for steroids every time we diagnose pancreatitis. But if we have a patient who's starting to get into SIRS, like systemic inflammatory response syndrome, mm-hmm. and we're gotten some bullshit and they're doing, then maybe, okay. Look, you could, you could, prov- you could start steroids and there is clinical evidence to support that decision. There's also clinical evidence to support a decision of not doing it. So. It's your choice. It's your choice. Okay. Nutritional therapy. All right. Well, Traditionally, we fasted them. Okay, now this is in debate because many people are like, girl, the GI tract's not going to get better unless you feed it. Mm-hmm. Okay. We do know that prolonged um, starvation, <laughs> sorry, that, pro- <laughs> that, that prolonged NPO status leads to problems. Okay, mm-hmm. so you get low protein, the intestinal motility uh, starts to shut down and become all shitty. The ability of the intestine to absorb nutrients, the permeability decreases. And then even the blood flow decreases if the GI tract's not working. Mm -hmm. So, like, it is a use it or lose it situation with the GI tract. So, I am one that feeds them. I'm going to just tell you, I I don't wait any number of hours or days. I wait long enough for the serenity to kick in or whatever. (laughs) And I don't force feed them, okay, but I'm going to offer. And if I get to, like, you know, you know, if I get to, like, the 48-hour mark of them not eating, I'm like, why don't we put an NG tube in this dog, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, Now, I will say that in many of the sources for today's episode, they talk about how Enteral feeding is imp- is like better than parenteral feeding, okay? So if we're going to provide assisted nutrition, a feeding tube is preferred to like a total parenteral nutrition, like IV type of food situation. Mm-hmm. There was one study that showed that dogs who ate within 48 hours of hospitalization didn't take as long to begin eating on their own again, and they took less time to return to like their full meal size. They also had fewer GI signs. They didn't stay in the hospital less days, though, okay? Their hospitalization was about the same. When we're on the topic of feeding, most people advocate for a significantly low-fat diet for these guys, like a prescription low-fat diet that's Mm -hmm. got way less fat than you would see, you know, with any other commercially available, like, OTC type of food. However, I want to point out that the data about this conflicts a little bit. So Mm -hmm. some patients will do actually a little bit better on a moderate-fat diet. 
Okay. So even though the thing that I hear tons is highly digestible, super low fat diet, just know that there are other types of diets these dogs might do better on if they're not doing better on that. So like, I feel like there's a lot of owner guilt sometimes, or maybe even vet guilt or frustration about like, just feed the dog the effing, you know, diet and just, you know, stop talking to me. And the owners are like, the dog hates it. They won't eat it. And then people are like, oh, then if you're feeding anything else, it's a death sentence. Mm-hmm. And I want to I want to emphasize that that is like really over the top language to be using <laughs> when you read the studies. And you're like, actually, like a high fiber or moderate fat diet works, too, like in these studies. So, yeah, I'm, you know, what if we work with what the dog could eat is my thought. Mm-hmm. Anyway, force feeding is not really recommended because of the risk of food aversions. I personally uh, hate, it's my super pet peeve to f- see an animal being force fed. I will intervene and say something about it and be a bitch about it every single day that I see <laughs> happen. Okay. Especially cats, man. If you're force feeding the cat in front of me, I will eat your lunch. Literally. If the cat doesn't. That's right. The cat's not eating its lunch. I'm going to eat yours. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, I think uh, it's... Uh, bad to think about when you're feeling nauseated if someone forced you to eat Mm-mm. that would be a very traumatizing experience now if you have to go to something like a feeding tube rest assured that if you're administering a liquid diet where you've got significant amounts of fat and protein aka pretty much any of the liquid diets that exist mm-hmm. studies have shown that this is not associated with more risk okay good so get the calories into the pit you're going to be okay <laughs> Other things that you might need occasionally, dogs with this problem need surgery for their biliary obstruction, okay? Or really bad pancreatic necrosis. You got to go in, clean that up. You might have to have part of the pancreas amputated. I've (laughs) had that happen before. I mean, I didn't take it out, okay? But somebody else did. But you got a big pancreatic abscess or a giant cyst. Sometimes you got to go in there and handle that surgically. Yikes. Mm Mm-hmm. And then, you know, RTLC, okay? Mm -hmm. If we're having temperature issues, we need to provide heat support potentially, okay? Mm -hmm. We need to pet them and tell them they're good and give them little kisses Mm -hmm. and draw little cute hearts on their bandages and stuff like that, on their little paw for their Mm -hmm. IV, you know, and maybe carry them around in a little, you know, what's that thing that babies ride in? A papoose. Maybe put them in a papoose. I don't have no babies. Yeah, and tote them around. Tote them around. Give them a snuggle. That's right. Give them a little kisses. Babies. Right on the face. (laughs) (laughs) You know, they got a gross mouth too, JJ. Oh, Oh my God. I can smell it. Yeah, me too. So what do we got to do as far as monitoring goes? Well, uh, monitoring requirements are also going to vary depending on how bad the situation is. So obviously you're looking at vitals, Okay. Uh, pain scores, make sure that our pain control is adequate. Um, you want to be measuring fluid ins and outs uh, so that you can make sure that we're not in kidney failure or something mm-hmm. like that. Okay. And body weight. Okay. So patients in the hospital need to be weighed daily because if you're seeing big swings in weight, uh, particularly like a, I think about a small animal like a cat or a small dog, if they've put on a pound or more, then we need to be really looking at that fluid rate to make mm-hmm. sure that we're not giving them too much. Mm-hmm. Okay. Electrolytes. 
All right, we got our patient here. It's got a little low potassium. We're going to supplement it, but we need to watch it. And then that way we can titrate it depending on what it goes to. Coagulation status, particularly in patients that are very severely affected, that's not a one and done. They might need serial monitoring there, uh, blood pressure, things like that. And then we might need to continue to monitor like a full, you know, minimum database again, make sure that nothing major is changing. Especially in a dog like this one that's in our case, it's already got diabetes. Mm-hmm. You know, um, diabetics are prone to more comorbidities and have a harder time recovering from anything, much less something as severe as pancreatitis potentially. So uh, I would be getting like a full, you know, minimum database again once a day if the owners are on board for paying for it. There's one thing that I don't know that I would repeat. Okay. And that is like, pancreatic lipase okay the reason that i wouldn't is that i have seen dogs clinically recover and have the cpl snap test be positive for like weeks okay so i don't use that as a benchmark for quote recovery now when you're reading some sources will occasionally mention that you can monitor this but others are like don't because it stays elevated for a long time. So I'm in the don't camp because it, I cannot think of literally anything that it changes. My litmus test for running a test is, is it going to change in any way how I am treating the patient in real life? And the answer to that's no, because if the patient's doing worse, running that again doesn't help me. I'm going to either discharge them home on oral meds if they're better or keep working to find out what else is happening and change their plan if they're worse. And I don't, I just don't know if that helps me. So what about prognosis? Well, again, it depends on how severe the pancreatitis is, okay? If you've got acute pancreatitis and mild symptoms, that actually has a pretty good prognosis. Mm-hmm. But those patients that had the really severe clinical signs, they're more guarded. Mm-hmm. Um, in chronic pancreatitis, because of the potential to develop extracurricular pancreatic insufficiency or even diabetes, long-term prognosis is guarded because both of those conditions are kind of challenging and expensive to treat long-term, okay? It's not that they're untreatable, but it is difficult. Like, it takes a dedicated pet owner to manage those types of conditions. So, JJ, mm-hmm. what happens in our patient Zeke from the top of the episode? So Zeke was hospitalized and started on IV fluid therapy with potassium supplementation via KCL. Fantastic. So they started the patient on Serenia, Pantoprazole, Metronidazole, and Unison. And the patient was given an oral dose of Entice two hours after Serenia administration and held it down successfully. Okay. Go Zeke. Yeah. We didn't really even talk about uh, appetite stimulants, but yeah. it's a good idea. There okay. So he was offered some food by hand, but not force-fed, every four hours beginning two hours after successful administration of Entice. And the patient was also started on oral caraphate. Yeah. After 12 hours of hospitalization, he began to eat small amounts of plain chicken, and vomiting stopped after the first injection of Serenia. Okay. Go, Zeke. Yeah. Uh, diarrhea gradually improved over 72 hours. And he was discharged home after 48 hours of hospitalization. Insulin was continued at the previous dose. And he was changed to a canned prescription low-fat diet. Okay. What happened after uh, Zeke was discharged from the hospital? He continued to do well in the months after this episode, but unfortunately developed additional episodes. 
He continued to have flare-ups of clinical pancreatitis approximately one to two times a year for the remainder of his life, even despite um, good blood sugar control, appropriate dietary therapy, strict adherence to diet, and as-needed serenia administration at home. They suspected an underlying GI disease, but never was officially diagnosed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, a poor guy, you know, and even if he'd had something like inflammatory bowel disease diagnosed, that makes it really tricky because you're Mm -hmm. also diabetic. Mm -hmm. It does make me wonder even more because of that bright appearing pancreas on ultrasound, you know, and just the circumstantial case here of like, you know, he went home initially, did well, and then he had repeated flare-ups over time. You know, did he have like a kind of like a chronic smoldering pancreatitis Mm -hmm. happening and poor guy. It does make me wonder if that's maybe why he became diabetic in the first place. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I don't know that we can prove that in any way. Well, you know, what could have proved it, a necropsy, but we don't have any information about that. Oh, boo. Yeah. So that's my theory, but I um, cannot guarantee that that's what was going on. (laughs) It seems suspicious. It do. Okay. Well, so, JJ, mm-hmm. uh, we are, like, super out of time. Yep, that was we don't have marathon. time for anything else. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not even going to read the sources. Find them in the show notes. Okay. <laughs> if you have questions, cases, stories, or anything else you'd like for us to read, please send it to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And it's at introvets. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. Show do. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.